you have your Bibles, again, I invite you to turn with me to the first book in the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew. If you're a guest with us, we've been working through a series in the Gospel of Matthew, and we've come to Matthew chapter 17 this morning. If you're using a pew Bible, you'll find it on page 1045, Matthew chapter 17. And we come to a text today that no matter how many hours you put into preparing and writing the sermon, it feels that at the end of it, the sermon is inadequate for the greatness of the text. And this text is one of the great texts of Scripture. And my prayer this morning is that we will all feel the weight of this text and the emphasis that Matthew is trying to get us to feel and experience. And so I want to speak for a few minutes on this subject today, a mountaintop experience. Matthew chapter 17, and we'll begin reading in verse number 1, and this is what the Word of God says. And after six days... Jesus took with him Peter and James and John his brother and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Then why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but to him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Significant events take place on mountains. It is true in Scripture, and it is true in our lives. That's why we've coined the phrase, mountaintop experiences. And if you were to go to my office, and if you were to look on my desk, there would be a picture that would be facing you as you sat in my desk chair that would be a memory of a mountaintop experience. 
And there in that picture, you would see me and my beautiful bride standing on a little hilltop in Nepal with the Himalayan mountains behind us. A trip that we spent months praying for, planning, preparing, a trip in which we had to farm out all of the children in different places and get different help, a trip that will be forever etched in our minds, a mountaintop experience. And when we come to this passage of Scripture that we've just read, we come to another mountaintop experience. A mountaintop experience in which Peter, James, and John will forever have etched in their memories. You see, mountains matter in the Gospel of Matthew. In Matthew chapters 5 through 7, we have Jesus' most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 14 and verse 23, we find that Jesus prayed a significant prayer on the mountain. In Matthew chapter 15, verses 29 to 38, he healed and fed the multitudes on the mountain. In Matthew chapters 24 and 25, Jesus taught his disciples on the Mount of Olives about the signs of his coming and the end of the age. And in Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 to 20, the passage that we often refer to as the Great Commission, Jesus ushered his disciples up on that mountain before his ascension back to glory and gave them the command to go into all the world and make disciples. And then there's Matthew chapter 4 and the temptation of Christ where Matthew records that the devil took Jesus to a very high mountain and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world and he showed them all of their glory to tempt him to bypass the cross. And finally, we have Matthew chapter 17 and the transfiguration of Christ. And some scholars say that the high mount of transfiguration is the antithesis of the high mount of temptation in Matthew chapter 4. That here in Matthew chapter 17, we see a picture of true glory compared to the false glory that the devil was offering Jesus. This passage of Scripture contains one of the most remarkable events in the early, earthly life of Christ. The event commonly referred to as the transfiguration. This account is also recorded in Mark chapter 9 and in Luke chapter 9. And it had a profound effect on those who witnessed it. This event took place, the Bible says, six days after the events at Caesarea Philippi, where Jesus gathered his disciples together and asked them, Who do the people say the Son of Man is? to which Peter gave his most famous confession, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then Jesus declared to them the cost of what it meant to follow him. And then he took 
the three, Peter, James, and John, up to this high mountain and was transfigured before them. As we walk through the details of this text, Matthew reveals how the transfiguration shows us, as it showed Peter, James, and John, that Jesus is more than just a teacher. He is more than a healer. He is more than an exorcist of demons. He is more than a king. Jesus is the sovereign, holy, glorious, preeminent, beloved Son of God, indwelt with the complete fullness of God. Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords in all of His glory. And like Peter, James, and John, when we get a glimpse of the glory of Christ, we have a mountaintop experience and we are forever changed because of His glory. So notice with me in the text this morning in verses 1 and 2, the display of the glory of Christ. Matthew writes, and after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and he led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. Luke, in his account, in Luke chapter 9, verses 28 and 29, says that Jesus took with him Peter and John and James, and he went up on this mountain, Luke says, to pray. And Luke says, as Jesus was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. Matthew uses the word transfigured in verse number 2 to describe what happened to Jesus while he was praying on this mountain. And from this word transfigured, we get our English word metamorphosis. And here is literally what a metamorphosis means. And you need to have this etched in your mind to understand this passage properly. Metamorphosis is a change on the outside that comes and emanates from the inside. An example is that of a caterpillar when it builds a cocoon and later emerges as a butterfly. The change comes about because of a metamorphosis. And Matthew is showing us with the use of this word that the glory of Jesus Christ on that mountain radiated from within him, not from outside of him. That the change that Peter, James, and John saw on the outside was a result of what took place on the inside of Jesus. As Jesus displayed His glory, the glory that only belongs to God. The writer of the book of Hebrews declared that Jesus Christ Himself was the radiance, the very radiance and essence of the glory of God. And in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3, this is what the writer of Hebrews said. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. 
and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. By his very word, he makes the universe to function. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus is the very radiance of the glory of God. Now keep in mind, friends, that Jesus had been living for over 30 years in an ordinary human body. And now, in this moment... On this mountain, he is partially seen in the blazing radiance of the glory of God. That from within himself, in a way that defies full description and complete explanation, Jesus' divine glory was manifested before Peter, before James, and before John. And notice what Matthew says in verse 2. That Jesus' face shone like the brightness of the sun. And that His clothes became as white as light. That His appearance changed in such a dramatic way that the light that was emanating from inside of Him caused His very skin and his very clothes to shine with dazzling brilliance, emphasizing his purity and his sovereignty and his glory. Mark, in his account, in Mark chapter 9 and verse 3, described the brightness and the light of Christ's skin and clothes this way. He said, and his clothes became radiant. They were intensely white. And listen, no one on earth could bleach them. Not even OxyClean could make it as white as what Jesus' clothes were on that mountain. Friends, don't miss the weight of this text. This text is the greatest confirmation of the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ yet in the Gospel of Matthew. Here, then, more than any other occasion so far in His Gospel, Jesus revealed Himself as He truly is, the very Son of God. And just like the manifestations of the Shekinah glory of God in the Old Testament, Jesus portrayed himself to human eyes in a form of light so stunning that it overwhelmed Peter, James, and John. Peter was so affected by what he witnessed in that moment on that mountain that many years later, after the resurrection of Christ, when he was preaching the gospel in his second epistle, the book of Second Peter, he wrote about and testified to what he witnessed on that mountain. And in Second Peter chapter 1, verses 16 to 18, this is what Peter declared. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths, when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on that holy mountain, forever changed by the glory of Christ. John John also bore witness in his writings of the events that he experienced on that mountain. In the prologue to his gospel, in John chapter 1 and verse 14. And listen, you'll know this verse. It's very familiar to you at Christmas time. But have you ever thought about this verse in the context of Matthew chapter 17? Because that's what he's writing about. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Listen to what John wrote. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John beheld the glory of Christ. You say, well, what about James? I've read James's epistle over and over, and James has never written about the glory of Christ. You're right. He didn't because James was one of the earliest martyrs for the faith. And so he never wrote about this experience. But I can assure you this morning, if Peter was changed and John was changed, James was changed. But listen, friends, as astonishing as this display of the glory of Christ was, are you listening? It was just a foretaste of the glory that will be revealed when the Lord Jesus Christ comes again. And just as Matthew wrote about the foretaste of the glory of Christ in chapter 17, he wrote about the future glory that is to come. And in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 27, this is what he says about that future glory. He says, For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. He is going to come in the full, unveiled glory of his heavenly Father with the angels to judge the world. In Matthew chapter 24 and verse 30, this is Jesus' own words. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And Jesus, what will happen on that day when in heaven the sign of the Son of Man appears and the nations of the world see that sign? Listen to what Jesus said. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. They'll mourn. And why will they mourn Jesus? Because they'll see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power. Listen, friends, listen to the text. And great glory. Not just glory. Not just a foretaste of glory that you're seeing here in Matthew chapter 17. As great as this glory is in chapter 17, you haven't seen anything yet 
to the glory that will be revealed on that day. It will be so glorious and so powerful. Jesus said that the nations of the earth will mourn when they see his power and glory. That's how great Jesus Christ is. Not convinced? Matthew chapter 25 and verse 31. And when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Not just a throne. Not just a throne where he will rule and reign for all eternity. Not just a throne where he will make all the wrongs right. A glorious throne. A throne where every time you look at it, it will display the unveiled glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. In human form, Jesus was veiled. But when he comes again, the veil will be removed and we will see his majesty and his glory like never before. And it will be great glory. And this glory, this foretaste that the disciples saw on this mountain, it left no doubt in their minds who Jesus was. And it changed them. I've shown you that through Scripture this morning. It changed them. What about you? What about you this morning? Is the glimpse the glory of Christ changing you? Or is your Jesus domesticated? Is your Jesus ordinary? Is your Jesus commonplace in your life? The word transfigured that Matthew used in verse number 2 is also used in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 18 and in Romans chapter 12 and verse 2. And it describes in those texts the inner transformation that takes place in the life of a believer when they know Christ to make them more like Christ. And Paul says that we see his glory and his glory changes us. That we're different that our lives begin to take on a new form, that as the life of Christ and the glory of Christ begins to transform us, we change in the way we think. We change in the way we feel. We change in the way we believe. We change in the way we act. We change in the way we worship. Listen, friends, it's not an outside change in. It is an inside change out. It is true change. It's not just covering up on the outside while everything is still the same on the inside. It is a true change in your heart and your soul that brings evident results on the outside. That is transformation. That is what Paul says the glory of Jesus Christ does in our lives. So I'll ask you again. Is... The glory of Jesus Christ changing you. Are you beholding the glory of Christ in such a way 
that the inside of you is different and it's being evidenced on the outside of you. Has Jesus changed you? Because when you are confronted with the glory of Christ, you cannot stay the same. Well, we not only see the display of the glory of Christ, secondly, we see the discussion surrounding the glory of Christ in verses 3 and 4. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. You'll notice in verse number 3 that Matthew uses that word that he loves to insert over and over again, the word behold. And he uses it, if you'll recall, to prepare his readers for something startling and something significant. And so there is certainly in verses 3 and 4 something startling and something significant. As if the glory of Christ wasn't startling and significant enough. And so as Peter, James, and John watched the transfiguration of Christ in amazement, Matthew says that Moses and Elijah also appeared to them, and that Moses and Elijah, look at the text, began talking to Jesus. Now notice in the text in verses 3 and 4 that Matthew does not say that the faces of Moses and Elijah are shining, or that their clothes are white and brilliant like Christ, even in this exalted company, Matthew shows us that Jesus reigns supreme. He is the only one who is transformed. But it still begs the question, doesn't it? Out of all the people who could be with Jesus on the mountain, why Moses? Why Elijah? Well, their presence on this mountain was significant. Moses represented the law of God. The Bible says in the book of Exodus that God met with his people to give them his law and that this law is often referred to as the law of Moses. And when God met with Moses to give him his law, he met with him on a mountain, Mount Sinai. And everyone else among the Israelites had to stand back from the mountain from fear because of the glory of God that was present on that mountain. And while Moses was meeting with God on that mountain, the Bible says in the book of Exodus that Moses made a request of God. And in Exodus chapter 33, verses 18 to 23, the Bible records Moses' request. And this is what Moses said. Please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before my name the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, 
There is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. The Bible says that God kept his word to Moses. And in Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7, Moses got a glimpse of God's glory. And this is what he wrote. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. The Bible says, after seeing God in His glory and receiving the two tablets of stone containing the Ten Commandments, Moses' physical appearance was altered because of God's glory. And in Exodus chapter 34, verses 29 to 33, it records how Moses went down from Mount Sinai with the tablets of the testimony of the law of God in his hands, and he didn't know that his skin had changed and that his face had shone because he had encountered the glory of God. It changed him. And though... It was a veiled depiction. Moses beheld God and his glory. And then Moses, listen, he reflected God's glory. You say, well, what about Elijah? Well, Elijah didn't reflect the glory of God like Moses did. Elijah proclaimed the glory of God. And in Exodus chapter 18, we read that Isaiah was the prophet of zeal, that he was a godly man, that he was unmatched in courage and boldness and fearlessness, that he had a heart for God and that he walked with God, and that he was an instrument of God's mighty working power. And in 1 Kings chapter 18, he challenged all the prophets of Baal and all of the false gods that were stealing the glory of the one true God. And God used Elijah on that mountain, on Mount Carmel, to destroy the false gods and the false worship of Baal. But then if you'll recall the story of Elijah, in the very next chapter, in chapter 19, Elijah gets depressed. Jezebel wants to take his life. And Elijah goes up on Mount Horeb. And there on Mount Horeb, God meets him. And on that mountain, Elijah got a display of the glory of God, but it wasn't like Moses' display. The Bible says in 1 Kings chapter 19 that Elijah experienced the glory of God in a whisper and in the wind. Do you know what I immediately thought of? Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory 
of God. And this proclaimer of the glory of God experienced the glory of God in a whisper. Explain that, friends. Explain the greatness of the glory of God in that. Words cannot describe it. So why Moses? Why Elijah? Because Moses represented the law of God. And Elijah represented the prophets of God. And both Moses representing the law and Elijah representing the prophets were both taken to high mountains where they met God in his glory and their lives were forever changed. And who better to meet Jesus on this mountain in the midst of the display of his glory than the one who represented the law and the one who represented the prophets who knew all about the glory of God. And by their presence on this mountain, don't miss this, church. This is worth your trip today. By their presence on this mountain, both Moses and Elijah were affirming and in effect saying, this is the one whom we testified to, the one in whose power we ministered, the one in whom everything we said and did has meaning. Everything we spoke, everything we accomplished, everything we hoped for is fulfilled in this man, the glory of Christ. And that's why after his resurrection, Jesus met some of his disciples on the road to Emmaus. And Luke says in Luke 24, 27, that beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures confirming himself. Moses and Elijah are on the mountain in the midst of the glory of Christ because they testified to the glory of Christ. And Christ is the fulfillment of all the law and all the prophets. And in that moment, on that mountain, Jesus was not just merely reflecting or proclaiming divine glory. Jesus was divine glory. Jesus didn't imitate the glory of God. Jesus is the glory of God. And from Luke chapter 9 and verse 31, we learn that while Moses and Elijah were testifying to the glory of Christ, how he was the fulfillment of their life and their ministries, they talked to him. Don't you wonder what they were talking about? Well, I have good news for you. The Bible tells us. In Luke chapter 9 and verse 31, Luke says that they were talking about his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. They weren't standing there just randomly chatting. How was your week? How was your week? What's going on new with you? They were talking about Christ departure, his imminent sacrifice on the cross. Do you know the word we get from the word departure in this verse? It's the word exodus. Exodus. 
Moses, the one God used to lead the exodus of his people, was talking to the Son of God about his exodus and leading his people out of the bondages of sin to the cross. They not only gave confirmation to Christ's glory, they gave confirmation to Christ's death. Now, you know Peter's in the text, right? So look at what he does in verse 4. And now, before you're too hard on him, put yourself on that mountain under the weight of that glory in that scene with Moses and Elijah How would you have responded? Well, in verse 4, Matthew records Peter's response to all that he witnessed on the mountain. And he said, Lord, it is good that we are here. I agree with that, wouldn't you? It'd be good to be there and see that display. But then Peter goes off the rails. If you wish... I will make three tents here, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Luke 9.33 gives additional information to what Peter said. Do you know what Luke's commentary is on it in verse 33? He said all of this not knowing what he said. That sounds just like Peter, doesn't it? Mark says in Mark chapter 9 and verse 6, he did not know what to say, Because he was terrified. And so instead of being quiet in the presence of the glory, no, 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 no. Peter had to open his mouth. And he completely failed to comprehend the significance of the glory of Christ in that moment. Peter was content to remain on the mountaintop. And aren't you just like him? When you're on the mountain, like things couldn't get any better in your walk with God than they are right now on the mountain. And you don't ever want to leave. You're just like Peter. I am just like Peter. We never want to leave the mountaintop experience. But you always have to come down off the mountain. And Peter, he didn't want to leave the mountain. Do you remember chapter 16? He didn't want to leave the mountain because he didn't want Jesus to go to the cross. Now, many scholars believe that at the time of this account, the Feast of the Booths was taking place. And that's why Peter said, Jesus, if you wish, I'll build three huts For you and Moses and Elijah, and we'll stay up here and we'll celebrate God's work and delivering his people, and we'll just continue this mountaintop experience. We'll just revel in the glory. Peter still didn't get that part of the glory was the cross. That To have glory, you have to have a cross. The suffering comes before glory. 
And God in his goodness and his grace is giving Peter and James and John and you and me a glimpse of the glory that awaits us to help us through the suffering. To help us through the hardship. It's interesting in the text. Moses and Elijah just disappear off the scene, off the mountain. Why? Because Jesus fulfilled everything that they did. And Jesus remained as the sole object of worship. That's his rightful place. The sole object of worship. There's hope in this text. Did you know that it had been over 1,400 years since Moses died and God buried him? And it had been over 900 years since Elijah was taken up in the whirlwind by God to heaven. And yet, on this mountain, they're seen alive, they're recognizable, and they're talking with Jesus. And in this transfiguration, in the display of the glory of Christ, we have some of the clearest evidence that the dead will rise again. That those in heaven will have real bodies. That those in heaven will be recognizable. That those in heaven will have names. Those in heaven will have personalities. And those in heaven will fellowship with one another and with Jesus. And because of Jesus' departure to the cross, sin has been defeated. Forgiveness has been extended. And for those who will turn to Christ, death is transformed into life. That death becomes the vehicle to glory. And all of that is seen in this mountaintop experience. So let me ask you today, friends. Has death been transformed for you? You know the latest statistics. One out of one dies. That every single person in this room has a date with deity either in your death or when the Lord Jesus Christ comes back for his church. There is no escaping it. Every single person in this room has a date with deity. Every single person watching on the live stream has a date with deity. The question is, has that date been transformed for you? Have you seen the glory of Christ? Have you seen the departing work that he's done on the cross for you and for the forgiveness of, this, of your sins and for the rescue of your soul? And have you turned to him in repentance and asked for his forgiveness? Because if you've done that, then death has been transformed for you. You no longer have to fear death. Death will be a welcome friend for you because it will be the vehicle that takes you into the glorious presence of the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who died for you and saved you so that you can live. Oh, friends, but listen to me. If you don't know Christ as your Savior today, death should be feared by you. 
Because when you die, you will meet the Lord Jesus Christ in all of his glory, in all of his holiness, and in all of his wrath for sin. That should cause you to be afraid of death. Because Jesus is the king of glory. And I'll tell you what this text demands. This text demands that you recognize Jesus for who he really is. The son of God who died for your sins and who will judge the world. This text demands that you see Jesus in that light. This text demands that you feel the weight of the glory of Jesus. The glory of God, one of the best ways I could describe it to you is It's a weightiness of his power and his majesty and his holiness all coming together. Such a weight as Peter, James, and John uh, are depicted in this passage. When they see his glory, they fall down in fear and reverence before God. That's the weight, the weight that this passage demands. When you understand who Christ is, you can't treat him as ordinary and casual. He is the Lord of glory. And the third thing that this passage demands, it demands that Jesus and Jesus alone gets your worship. Not the false gods and idols of this world. Not the things that we prop up in our lives to take the place of Jesus and crowd him out of our lives. No, friends, Jesus is supreme. He is the radiance of the glory of God. And when you feel the weight of his glory, all you can do is bow in humility. Would you come to Christ today? I know, as sure as I'm standing on this platform, that there are people in this room who don't know Christ as their Savior, who've never been transformed by Christ. You've seen a glimpse of it today, and you've seen a glimpse of the glory that is to come. Would you turn from your sin and come to Christ today? And would you, Christian, would you bow in worship and reverence to this glorious God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. For the weightiness of texts like this. Help us to feel and sense and know the weight of your glory. And we pray today for those here without Christ, that they would see their need for Christ 
like never before. They would turn to him today in repentance and faith. We pray that you would help us, your people, to be renewed and refreshed by this glimpse of Christ and bow under the weight of your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing to the Lord in response to what he said to us through his word.